giving people an appreciation for how nutritional science works, how their body works, and what simple solutions there are was really the, the aim of this book. And I'm hopeful and I'm glad thus far that people have really got that message. And we can really eat to be illness by preventing it from even starting in the first place. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. So what if I told you that you can literally eat to beat illness, most specifically with foods that you love? Well, it is 100% true, and that is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I initially started studying the concept of food as medicine while I was researching my first book about 10 years ago. Did you know that my first book out of my seven books was called The Antioxidant Counter? And using food to heal the body has been a through line for me in all of my books, especially the newest book, The Essential Oil Hormone Solution. Now, a little side note about The Antioxidant Counter, although it was my first book, it didn't sell that well, mainly because people weren't really that interested in the science of antioxidants and what they did for the body. But I sure was. I was such a nutrition nerd from the get-go. Now, luckily, Dr. Rupi has also discovered that food is key to healing the body and has created a wonderful show in London called The Doctor's Kitchen, although I know you can find it on YouTube as well. And he teaches us how to cook healing foods with ease and grace. Because let's be honest, when we first start to embark in that healing foods journey, it can feel a little complicated. And it reminds me of the healthy food cooking classes that we used to host in my office back in the day. Now today, Dr. Rupi and I are going to be talking about how to make healthy food more accessible and why food is the key factor to beating illness. But before we jump into this insightful interview with Dr. Rupi, I want to quickly celebrate you. Now, one particular healing rock star is Megan, and I'm excited to shout out her win that she shared on iTunes earlier last month. And I just want to say thank you so much, Megan, for sharing on iTunes. It's how we move the needle and really get this podcast out to many more women. Here's what Megan had to say. I love this podcast. I've been dealing with health issues for years, and I was getting zero answers from all the doctors I was seeing. I stumbled across Dr. Marisa's podcast earlier this year, and it has changed my life. I learned to become the CEO of my health, and I've been able to do so by educating myself through all the amazing resources Dr. Marisa provides on this podcast. I finally got my diagnosis and continue to be inspired by the advice and information that Dr. Marisa provides here. Thank you for your amazing work and what you're doing, Dr. Marisa. Well, Megan, I can't tell you how happy I am for you to finally feel like you've got those answers. I know that place where you just feel like you're running around and running around with no end in sight from doctor to doctor to doctor, getting the answers that you are not looking for. So I'm so excited to celebrate you today. What an incredible win. Now, if you're listening, Megan, I would love to gift you a personalized signed copy of my EO Hormone Solution book. Feel free to just reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Marisa, and I will hook you up, girl. Well, if you are listening, you know I want to shout you out too. If there has been something on this podcast, an interview, a solo episode, a little, little something that has changed the way that you thought about your health, let us know. Share it on 
iTunes, Instagram, Facebook, or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. Not only will I will continue to be able to support you in your journey, but just open the door for more women to really get the answers that they're looking for especially if they have been going around in that merry-go-round of doctor after doctor and not getting solutions that they're looking for. That's what this podcast is all about. Now I want to dive into our incredible conversation with Dr. Rupi, but first let's sing his praises. Dr. Rupi is a medical doctor specializing in general practice. He's a firm believer that food is powerful and lifestyle changes can heal and prevent illness, and he wants to make healthy lifestyles enjoyable and deliciously accessible for everyone. He is the founder of the Culinary Medicine Nonprofit in the UK. He's the author of Eat to Beat Illness and The Doctor's Kitchen, and he lives in London, England. Although he was just here taping on Rachel Ray a couple days ago while he was promoting his book. So fun that he was in the US when we recorded this. Let's get him on the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Rupi. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing super wonderful. I am so excited to talk about food with you today. It's one of my favorite topics of conversation, and I inherently believe that food is medicine. So I want to just start off with having you share a little bit about yourself and why this has become such a beautiful mission for you. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. So I'm a general practitioner. I do emergency medicine. The way I was introduced into the nutritional medicine side of things was through my own personal health issues. So I actually suffered um, atrial fibrillation, which is a cardiac condition where your heart beats exceptionally fast and irregularly. And I was actually on shift whilst this was happening. I was actually treating patients at the time for my first episode. And after I was admitted and diagnosed, I went on to have these episodes two to three times per week over the next year. I saw multiple different cardiologists. I had multiple different investigations. A trigger wasn't found. I was going to have an intervention called an ablation procedure. But it was then really that I started to look at my lifestyle, look at what I was eating, and just see if there was a connection there. And I don't know if it's common knowledge, but medics, both in the UK and the US, are not really taught nutrition very well or lifestyle medicine. So preventative medicine, the appreciation for the impact of sleep and stress, mindfulness. So I had to sort of do a bit of research myself coming from an Indian background. My parents always had Ayurvedic sort of principles steeped in our household with the way we ate. I was even taught how to meditate when I was a teenager. And so I went took a back-to-basics approach. I had a, a plant-focused diet. I started changing up my snacks. Instead of having cereals and you know hospital canteen food, I would bring in my own food. I started meditating again. I tried to make sure I was tucked up in bed uh, when I wasn't doing night shifts so I could optimize my sleep. And then to my amazement, to the amazement of my cardiologists, I came off all medications and I, and I haven't had episodes since. So that was really like my introduction into the power of food as medicine and the power of lifestyle as medicine, exercise, sleep, mindfulness as medicine. I started doing a lot more research into it, reading journals, reading papers, reading books, and having more open, honest conversations with my patients. And one day there was a patient who came in and we were chatting about his arthritis. 
and I gave him a couple of recipes and he was like, this is great. I just need you to show me how to do it. And that's when I kind of had the idea of the doctor's kitchen where I actually take videos and I show people how to cook on YouTube and social media platforms. And, and it kind of just went on from there. I love that. Now, when you started to do the doctor's kitchen, was that, I mean, I, I can imagine it's one thing to cook for yourself, right? There's one thing to kind of get an understanding of what food can do for you. But how was it to start to educate people about cooking? Was that a really new adventure for you? Yeah, it was actually. So actually having different patients in front of me from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different culinary confidence backgrounds, it was a real challenge at first. When I assumed that people knew how to make oats, for example, it was a big assumption. A lot of people have no idea how to boil an egg or you know the very basics of cooking. And that speaks to a, a more deep-seated issue that we've lost this ability to cook for ourselves, which I think is a fundamental part of living and well-being. You know, it's just as important as the knowledge of how to swim or walk or run living in today's world. Doing the basics and having to relate recipes to people's preferences was a bit of a challenge at the start, but it's kind of influenced the type of cooking and the recipes that I create in my books. So You'll notice in both Eat to Be Illness, the latest one in the US, and The Doctor's Kitchen, first book, my recipes skip from different cuisines, from Chinese to Korean to Middle Eastern, modern European, even American-style foods. And that's a real reflection of my experience with patients and trying to relate the food back to what they're comfortable with. I love that. I was thinking, you know, as you were getting started with videos, you know, I've learned so much I have a similar story. I had a healing story, but one of the biggest things that I learned out the gate was how important food was to healing my body. I talk about it all the time, but in my practice, we actually hired a really amazing nutritional chef who we come together with her and we had this six week cooking program that we would do with everybody. And we would change the cooking program. Like it was actually people would could come. It was a demonstration and we would change it based on the seasons of the year. So like for the, for Thanksgiving, well in the U S and for Christmas, we would teach people how to make healthy, like holiday food or during the summer, how to barbecue healthy. We had the pretty big group of people who would come, but we would have to really boil it down to the very, very basics in order to really create a successful class. So I, I was just remembering that time many years ago when we were doing this, thinking, I was like, I'm wondering if it was the same as you were preparing for that on like YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's brilliant. It's, uh, it's so good that you have uh, a proper chef as part of your practice. And I think a lot more people coming around to this idea of this collaborative effort between different specialties. And it's something that forms the basis of my nonprofit in the UK called Culinary Medicine UK, where we work in a team with uh, registered dietitians, professional chefs, behavioral psychologists, as well as GPs or family physicians, as you guys would call it to create modules that actually teach the basics of clinical nutrition and how to cook to medical students and qualified doctors, because there is so much we can learn from each other as well as individually. And it's that sort of that common respect that I think is, is so powerful. I absolutely agree. I want to steer our way because I, you and I both know how powerful food can be. Let's talk a little bit about, was it a surprise to you when you had, you know, kind of created a plan to heal your body 
and that your body really responded in a beautiful way. Was that a surprise to you initially? And then when you realized or discovered the moment that food was so powerful in order to heal the body, what was the next step in that research? Like, what have you discovered to kind of validate what happened for you? You know, it's a really interesting question because I'm constantly asked, what was it that I changed in my lifestyle that led to resolution of my medical issues? And the honest answer is it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly what it was. And the reality is it was most likely going to be a combination of different things. So just looking at it from a nutritional perspective, I could have increased my fiber, I definitely did increase my fiber intake of different types of fibers coming from beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, vegetables. I added variety. And we know that when you do that with your diet, you nurture the population of microbes that live in and around our body, but largely in our gut. And it's something that we refer to as the gut microbiota. And this population of largely bacteria, but also fungi, nematodes, viruses even, are inseparable from health and they release micronutrients, they modulate our sugar balance, they reduce inflammation, and they even create things like neurotransmitters that impact our mood. And it's undoubted that I would have impacted that microbiota in a positive way with simple dietary changes. In addition to that, having a plant-focused diet would have flooded my body with different sorts of phytochemicals so that plant chemicals you find from different plants. And it would have just been simple culinary herbs that I would have been using, seasonal vegetables that I would have access to in the UK, a lot of different sorts of greens. And specific plant chemicals that I would mention would be those from cruciferous vegetables and green vegetables. So you have indole-3-carbonyl, you have sulfurophane. And we know through studies looking at those in isolation, even though they're in lab-based studies, you know, they, they contain powerful anti-inflammatory chemicals. They have the ability to modulate the expression of your DNA. So the, the actual DNA that you inherit from mother and father, but you can change the expression of them, not the sequence of them. So that would have been one aspect. I certainly would have reduced my exposure to foods that may have had a harmful effect. So poor quality fats, refined carbohydrates, things that would have put my sugar balance out of whack and perhaps been harmful to the microbiota as well. And looking a little bit at my history, not to get too technical, but you know, I've had a, a number of challenges throughout my childhood. So repeated antibiotic exposures, a couple of surgeries, emotional stresses, all these different things may have contributed to me having a medical issue later on in life. It's just that Mine was perhaps a lot earlier than most people. I, mean, I was an otherwise fit and healthy 24-year-old. There's so many different ways I like to dissect it. And really, every time I gather a piece of information, it just adds to the core basics of what I, I try and teach people about. And when you get the basics right, your body has an ability to look after itself. You know, We have these incredible self-healing mechanisms, for, want of, for lack of a better term where if we put ourselves in the best environment, it knows how to look after itself. I agree. Absolutely. When you set your body up for success, especially when you set yourself up for, for success, when it comes to the gut and the microbiota, you really do, you really do make powerful changes inside of the body. Now with the new book, I, I got the new book and we've actually made a couple different recipes out of it, which I'm loving so much. I think I, I love that it is so diverse that there are so many different types of recipes in there that are really, really yummy and that are a lot of flavor 
talk to me about the importance of flavor in your book, because that is one thing that kept really standing out to me in the newest one. Oh, I really appreciate that. So yeah, I mean, my motto in the kitchen is flavor as well as function. There's no point of me trying to sell like a bland tasting foods or bland meals and just saying, look, you have to eat this. This is good for you because food is a special type of medicine. It's the way in which we connect with other people. We share each other's ethnic heritage. We can communicate through different cultures, through sharing of recipes and plates it's really important not to lose that facet of food, which makes it so, so important to health. With my recipes, rather than going down the line of talking about weird and wonderful ingredients like goji berries or different sorts of nootropics and herbs and stuff like that, although I appreciate their benefits, I really wanted to make this as accessible as possible. So the people that I see and treat in the NHS probably only have access to culinary herbs that in itself is so, so powerful. You know, simple tarragon, basil, Thai basil, coriander, parsley, you know, all these different culinary herbs are so, so chock full of different micronutrients and also plant chemicals that we know have benefits to the human health. And so when you eat a doctor's kitchen recipe, when you make it, hopefully you can appreciate the complexity that goes into it and also the beauty and its simplicity as well. And that you don't have to go and try and source ingredients that may not be accessible in your local supermarket, the things that you can get in, in most places. So that was a fundamental part of why I create recipes like that. But also, like I said, making it relatable to different cultures. You know, here in the UK, everyone loves a curry. And that's why I wanted to you know, experiment with different sorts of curries. There's an African-style curry, Ethiopian beriberi mix, and also Sri Lankan and, and Indian-style curries as well. No, that's what I really love. I, you know, I've read a lot of nutrition books and a lot of cookbooks, and I have my own. I've got a ton of books. Actually, almost every book that I have out has recipes in it. And, and not to say that we have we have a lot of flavor, but I just loved, um, I haven't approached the level of diversity that you have in your book. So I just was really fascinated by that. And I do love the, the use of all the herbs and all the spices. We know that they have powerful antioxidant and polyphenol properties and, and that they're very high on the ORAC scale. So it really was exciting to see the use of those. I think people don't realize how much benefit herbs and spices can have, and then how much flavor they can bring to the mix as well. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite meals from the book is the um, pho recipe that I made, so the PHO, uh, the Vietnamese recipe, where I make the broth, but very quickly. So traditional pho is you know, steeped over 24 hours, and you put bones in it or, or, or beef stock or whatever. This one was a, just a simple one using a few uh, spices, so cloves, star anise, lemongrass, and a couple of others, and ginger. Just using those simple ingredients, like you said, heightens the antioxidant value of the, the broth itself by including things that are very high in the ORAC scale, but also the flavor and that complexity of flavor that you get by using those herbs is, is just wonderful. I love making that when I'm feeling a little bit run down as well, because it really does like give me a lot more energy. I agree. I love that so much. Well, a big focus here on this podcast, it's, you know, I focus so much on women and women's health. We talk a lot about autoimmunity. We talk a lot about brain fog. We talk a lot about inflammation and how it can 
impact our hormonal pathways. It's a big part of that conversation. And one of the things that I drill down here so often is, is all of the hormone-loving foods that we can consume, foods that are phenomenal for our gut, foods that are great for our liver, and foods that take us away from inflammation, not towards inflammation is a big part of that. In the research that you've been doing around food, what have you discovered regarding certain foods that can lower inflammation? Is that a big focus in a lot of what you talk about? Yeah, so there's a whole chapter on uh, Eat for Inflammation where I dissect down exactly what we mean by inflammation because I think it's still poorly understood by the majority of, of people and how it underpins a lot of what we see with lifestyle-related illnesses that affect women disproportionately, actually, particularly heart health issues, commonly thought of as a male-dominant issue, but actually no. women. Uh, it's us, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And the British Heart Foundation have uh, put out a campaign actually over here in the UK to heighten people's awareness of that. But inflammation it, itself is perhaps one of the most important processes that we have on a human body. It's the way in which we react to environmental stresses, the way we defend ourselves from pathogens, so bacteria and viruses. It's also the way we communicate with each other. Our immune system essentially creates inflammation as a signaling method to signal to react but it's the excess of inflammation, the kind of inflammation that hangs around, doesn't really go away and, and kind of stays in the background that leads to a lot of the issues that we see in modern healthcare now. So obesity, low mood as well as mental health issues, as well as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So getting that understanding from people that they shouldn't be afraid of inflammation because actually short bursts of inflammation or stresses are actually good for the body is critical. When you exercise, for example, or you go into the sauna, you're activating your heat uh, shock proteins, so your, your stressor proteins that actually modulate your genetic expression. So whilst the short term is an inflammatory response, the long term is resilience from your body. Even polyphenols and, and phytochemicals that you find in things like turmeric, like curcumin, they actually elicit a hormetic effect whereby stress is uh, introduced and then the overall effect is anti-inflammation. So I think that concept is quite important to get people around. And you know what? The, the most important aspect of food that I think that most people would perhaps gloss over is fiber, and particularly for women's health. One way you could explain it via the impact on the microbiota that we discussed earlier, so how it nurtures that, and that has a whole bunch of effects on our immune system and, and inflammation balance. But also, it's the way in which we remove environmental pollutants. And tell them, we love having this conversation. <laughs> oh, good, good. So when you go to the toilet regularly, you're removing, yes, feces, but also everything that comes along with that and everything that your body is trying to expel. If you're not having regular motions for whatever reason, maybe you're poorly hydrated, maybe you don't have enough fiber, maybe there could be a psychological anxiety around going to the toilet as well as something that we see commonly these days, you're maintaining the environmental pollutants in your body essentially and that they can be resolved. And it sounds a bit scary, but really the, the solution is simple. It's trying to go to the toilet as often as possible. And by introducing more fiber into our, into our bodies, and it doesn't all need to be from beans and legumes, it can be from simple vegetables and a different variety of vegetables, we're actually lessening the estrogenic exposure of both environmental pollutants and, and also estrogens that your body naturally tries to remove. 
With regard to your liver, your liver and kidneys do a fantastic job of removing waste products from your body. And to support those and to support those processes are a number of different micronutrients at both phase one and phase two for the liver. So B vitamins, riboflavin in particular, different sorts of uh, uh, vitamins like uh, vitamin E and C, and also uh, micronutrients like, uh, I believe, selenium and, and just off the top of my head, magnesium. You get these in abundance from a heavily plant-focused diet with lots of variety. So really, it's the simple things that support your body's innate ability to look after itself. But I think fibers, yeah, definitely important. And I don't think a lot of realize that. I agree. It's, it's extremely important. And we are, the majority of us are very fiber deficient. You know, here in the States, we average about 11 grams and we need about 40. So we're very, very fiber deficient, especially for women when we're trying to move out estrogen, as you mentioned. You know, I always think of phase three of liver detoxification is happening in the gut microbiota. And if we don't have enough fiber to sweep it out, like you said, it, we, we end up recirculating. So that's a big concern for sure. And I'm glad you mentioned all some of the vitamins and nutrients, amino acids that are necessary for all the, the two phases inside of liver detoxification, because every step of the way, we want to make sure that everything's working properly so that we can continue to make that happen. And food is so, so much a part of that. I always think about too, you know, in this modern world, I know in the Europe, in Europe, in the UK and here in the US, we're in this constant state of perceived stress, you know, multiple times a day. And when we're in that state of perceived stress, we burn through a lot of nutrients as well, because it requires so much energy for us to be in that state, that kind of emergency survival state. And I think it's so important that, that we are consuming these types of nutrient dense foods throughout the day so that we can continue. When you think about and it's one thing to cook delicious food and to be and to really enjoy the experience in the process. But are there recommendations that you recommend? Like for me, I'm always recommending vegetables and fiber at every single meal, along with healthy fats, just because I, I, we just don't get enough of them to begin with. So how do we set ourselves up for success? You know, a savory breakfast, those types of things. Are there recommendations that you have found to be that just kind of have been really simple and kind of needle moving for the people that you've educated? Yeah, I mean, like I, I have a motto, <laughs> broccoli for breakfast. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I think you know something that people would probably frown at or, or not really appreciate as you know a normal breakfast, but actually we had to challenge our understanding or our perceived understanding of what a breakfast should look like in the UK and especially in the US. You know, it's seen as a, a sugary cereal or a croissant or you know something very quick and on the go and, and heavy in sugar. But really, when you do that, you're setting yourself up for the wrong type of day where you're constantly trying to chase the sugar crashes and the lows. Whereas if you have something that's fiber rich, that's filling and that's savory, and I'm a big fan of savory breakfast, then you're setting yourself up the right type of sugar balance and overall a great 24 hours. So I'm a big fan of trying to get your five a day or seven a day as early as possible and actually having your carbohydrate and fiber rich foods earlier. So you have a lighter dinner as well. And that will also impact your sleep in a beneficial way Something else I, I'd like to talk about is defining your, your eating hours. One of the principles of, of healthy eating is um, eating in a rough 10 to 12 hour window. So that doesn't do anything to the energy content of your food. It just changes when you eat. 
And I find that it's a very useful strategy for people who I see who are unwilling to change their diets. And so if I say, look, you know, just just eat in this window, can you do that? And they're usually they say yes. And, and overall, what that might do is reduce their total energy content of, of their 24 hours because they're no longer snacking out of boredom in front of the TV or whatever. But we know that defining your eating windows may have some benefits for inflammation and, and resting your digestive system that could impact favorably your health outcomes and your genetic expression as well. So I think that's definitely important. And also, you mentioned stress and, and burnout. You know, there, there is a, a lot more appreciation now for just how detrimental psychological stresses can be on your hormonal profile and directing resources away from your hormone production toward things like cortisol that is, is part of your fight and flight response. So you know, everyone having a mindfulness routine doesn't need to be as cliche as meditation or transcendental meditation or whatever. It could be as simple as putting your phone away for a few hours and going for a walk. Having giving yourself space from the constant bombardment of uh, of media activity that we're exposed to in the modern age, it's critical for our mental health as well as our physical health. I agree with all of that. I think that is so important, especially the eating window. You know, I think snacking is one of the worst things we can do for our energy levels. It it just slows down our mitochondrial function in our cells. Yes, I love the idea of of whatever mindfulness looks to you, like what whatever that looks like for you, just to be able to practice that or whatever form of self-care you feel connected into. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, my personal one is, um, I mean, I do meditate and I've been to where I meditate for a number of years now, but sometimes, you know, when I'm working from the studio here, uploading videos and that kind of stuff, I just leave my phone here and I just go for a walk in the local park and I'll just walk and I'll, I'll, I'll think about loads of things. And, and sometimes, you know, people think that meditation or sort of mindfulness practice needs to be removing all your thoughts, but actually sometimes it's just being aware and observing the fact that you are having a ton of thoughts and then annotating your day in accordance with that. What I love about that is that it's you're not listening to a podcast, you're not listening to music, you really are in your own thoughts. You're very quietly taking a walk and there's something to be said about that a couple times a week. So often because we have so much to listen to or to connect into that we don't really get that silent time, that quiet time away for ourselves. We don't even hear our own thoughts anymore today, I find. I've been a little guilty of it because there's so many podcasts I want to listen to. So if I'm hiking, I'm like, oh, I've got this podcast I can listen to. And I just need to be, I'm always reminding myself, no, this is the time I should just be more reflective, just kind of sit and think and just see what comes to me because you never know what kind of good ideas may come in through. So I really love that, that you're not listening to a podcast. <laughs> you're just walking in the park, which is so beautiful. Now, last question I wanted to ask you. When someone grabs this book, and I feel like it, it, you've done such a great job of creating ease and grace and making it simple, what's your intention for this book, this newest book? What is it that you want from the, the reader or the, the cook or the, the person who's running the family? What were you looking for for them to get out of it? Oh, yeah. And I really appreciate that question because I think a lot of people thought, you know, I've already written one book. What's the difference? Whereas the first book was like an introduction to food as medicine from a foodie's perspective. The second book, Eat to Be Illness, was me doing a deeper dive into the individual medical specialties like eating for your brain, eating for your heart, eating for eyes, cancer, immunity, and really dissecting what the lifestyle medicine research says and the nutritional science says about those respective fields. And then zooming out and actually demonstrating to everyone 
that if you hit the principles of healthy living, you're actually eating for all of those things. There isn't a need to eat prescriptively for your brain or specifically for immunity, because actually when you eat for either one of those things, you're actually eating for your entire ecosystem. And so giving people an appreciation for how nutritional science works, how their body works, and what simple solutions there are was really the, the aim of this book. And I'm hopeful and I'm glad thus far that people have really got that message and we can really eat to be illness by preventing it from even starting in the first place. I love that. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. I love the book already. I think it's phenomenal. I love that it's broken down. So many of us are looking for solutions specifically or how to eat for heart health, for brain health, our immune system. A lot of women here listening for autoimmune support. So I just want to say thank you so much for creating this book and to really, you know, I think we all know that food is healing, but when we can dial it down to a little bit more specifics, I think we just, it just gives us a little bit more understanding about how we can use food to heal our bodies. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. I really liked it. Absolutely. Thank you. My biggest takeaway by Dr. Rupi was his take on enjoying foods that not only make you healthy, but also taste good too. I want a full yes on that. And I love that his book really incorporates recipes from all over the world so that we do not get bored. I've made tons of recipes from his book already. My husband loves variety. So this was like such a perfect book for him. And I love that these foods are really amazing, nourishing foods that we can all incorporate more into our lives. Now, his view, I felt, was refreshing and positive. And after we finished the interview, we continued talking about how foods can help prevent chronic conditions like diabetes, cancer, autoimmunity, and even dementia. And you're going to learn so much more about that in his book. Now, I invite you to check it out. His new book is called Eat to Beat Illness. The links will be in the show notes for episode 139. And if you're looking for a great nutrition plan, meal plan specifically tailored to your hormones, I definitely want to also recommend checking out part three of my newest best-selling book, The Essential Oil Hormone Solution. My 14-day hormone rescue is where it's at for a powerful transformation when it comes to your hormone health, but also supporting your gut, your liver, and your brain function, which we all know on this podcast are key to healthy hormones and healthy cellular function. It's a mega win. And I will have the link up to the best-selling book in my show notes as well for episode 139. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for stopping by and listening in to the Essentially You podcast. On the next episode, I am super excited to bring on a dear friend, Dr. Megan Walker, to speak to us about finding our purpose and how finding our purpose is a key factor in our overall health and well-being. I can't wait for you to be inspired by her because she is bringing the business. Until then, have an amazing day. 